So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1463, Lessons from the Media Mogul You've Never Heard Of, with author Jane Biondi Munna. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. He took to heart that, you know, in the book, he worked for people who then fired him, who then became customers and clients. So like holding grudges really was not going to be productive to his own ends and to progressing within the industry. Today, we're going to take a little bit of an MBA course, a real life course on what it takes to lead, what it takes to strike deals, rise through the ranks, but most importantly, how to be a good person in the world of business. Our guest today is Jane Biondi Munna, who is the daughter of the late Frank Biondi, the media mogul you have never heard of, known as an architect of modern day Hollywood, according to the Los Angeles Times. Frank Biondi quietly shaped media companies into creative powerhouses. The companies he led included HBO, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, Viacom. He was instrumental in the productions that went into When Harry Met Sally and Seinfeld. Now his youngest daughter, Jane, has completed his memoir that chronicles the many contributions that he has made to the media world throughout his career. Frank passed away right before the pandemic, but his legacy lives on in this book, which is called Let's Be Frank. His daughter, Jane, is an executive at J.P. Morgan Chase. She has served for over a decade in roles across marketing, finance, strategy, and communications, including as the executive communications partner to the co-president and COO of the firm. Jane's career, like her father, has spanned many industries, finance, media, and sports. She's here to share insights from her book, and what it was like to be Frank's daughter. Here's Jane Biondi Munna. Jane Biondi, welcome to So Money. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a good time reading a little bit about the book you wrote about your father, Frank Biondi, and learning about him for the first time. I couldn't believe it. But I guess that kind of goes with the saying that, you know, your dad was um, one of the most powerful, most revered people in media that you never heard of. I wanted to first start by asking you, was that intentional on his part? Was he an introvert? Was he somebody who knew that sometimes when you're too out there that that, you know, brings in and invites maybe stuff that he didn't want to have be invited, you know, scrutiny, all of the things, their egos at play in the media world. Like what was sort of behind his demeanor, do you think? I think it was both of those things, but at different times, right? When he got started out in his career, it was much more about his natural manner of being. He was quiet. He was reserved. Uh, One of his friends and colleagues, Alan Schwartz in the book, called uh, dad saying he had an inner sense of accomplishment. So he didn't need that sort of external validation to know whether he had done something well or whether he had um, contributed in the way that he expected to. But then, of course, as he progressed in these uh, ever more public um, and giant jobs, frankly, I do think it was a little bit more overt, right? He was around personalities that were kind of red carpet ready, 
there are a bunch of stories in the book uh, about when he worked for Sumner Redstone, how the dynamic between them was actually affected by Sumner feeling like Frank had gotten more public credit than Sumner had, which is sort of interesting to think, you know, at those highest levels of corporations. People don't still change. Comes down to like, yes. Egos are uh, evolutionary. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So at that stage, he was much more deliberate about it. You know, he knew that the people that mattered to him knew what his contributions were, including, you know, Wall Street analysts and so on. And uh, he knew what value he brought and he could see the value he was bringing without having kind of the more public gratification. I want to get into some of these stories in the book, Let's Be Frank, which you finished for your father. You sort of carried the torch to the finish line. Unfortunately, he passed away before um, 2020, before the pandemic. Um, what do you think he would have thought about the the, the years that, that came after? I mean, um, in some ways, it was such a tragic two and a half years and still we're, we're living it in, in some ways. Um, what, what, what do you think? I mean, he he no, none of us have experienced this in our lifetimes. What do you think he would have thought about it? It's such a good question. I've thought about it a couple of times in the context of he, he died in November of 2019. So just about three or four months before we all locked down. Um, and he was fighting cancer at the time. So in that context, I was quite grateful that he wasn't fighting cancer at a time right. where we couldn't be with him in the hospital and other things like the end of his life would have looked very different. As far as what would he have thought of it had he been healthy and still been around? I think like all of us, he would have been sort of tired of it. You know, he had lived a life of kind of pure magic and charm until he um, got cancer. So he didn't have a lot of time for things that kind of slowed him down. It wasn't just wasn't something he was as familiar with. Uh, so I, I laughed a lot about how he would have been done with the mask mandates and he would have been done with the lockdowns and <laughs> he'd have been ready to get back to playing tennis and doing other things that he really enjoyed. You mentioned your dad's trajectory, his career trajectory. I sometimes wonder, I mean, let's let alone his demeanor of being sort of the nice guy and everyone referenced in this book and, and even outside of the book where I was reading articles, um, people referencing him about their experience working with him. It was always like just a good guy, how to be a good guy. Um, you know, uh, let's be frank. Um, but what beyond that, it's like, not only is that singular, but also his trajectory in the world of media, who gets to be, the head of all of these different major, major motion picture companies and, and platforms and whether it's like HBO or Viacom, like, do you think it's possible for someone to follow in his footsteps today? You know, I do in the sense that it, it served ultimately a purpose for him to be, it was very deliberate that he treated people the way that he would have liked to have been treated. And frankly, the way anyone would have wanted to be treated mostly because it's a, uh, the world is small, you know, there's like the, the saying goes, but the world of a particular industry, and in that case, cable television specifically, was a brand new space. There just weren't that many people working in it as it was born. Um, and those who then had experience in it were a small set as you were progressing. So part of the reason he got all of these opportunities was that it was an innovative space where the set of people who had the right experience was small, right? I, I referenced in the book, 
because he passed away, I intro the chapters to kind of give context to the content that he left us um, because he left kind of vignettes and stories that weren't tied together. And one of the uh, intros that I chose was from Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers, where he talked about the time and era in which you were born relative to kind of technological progress mm-hmm. can really impact the trajectory that you're on. And he was speaking specifically about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs being born to be 18, 20, 22 years old as silicone chips were becoming available to people, mm-hmm. right? So that they could use mainframe computers to code and then they go on to found you know, Apple and Microsoft and so on. In a smaller way, you know, he was born at the time where the innovation in media was happening. Okay. Um, so he, he took to heart that, you know, in the book, he worked for people who then fired him, who then became customers and clients. So like holding grudges really was not going to be productive to his own ends and to progressing within the industry. So I do think it started from a very, very practical standpoint, but then he also realized it set him apart. And the advice that he used to give as he got older was people really like to work with those folks that they like and that they trust. Um, and being the good person that you can rely on and and be the straight shooter is actually can be a real competitive advantage in any way of life. It's not always easy to do, right? You know, there are moments where you just want to scream and let out your frustration, but it's, it's very rarely productive, particularly in a, in a professional environment. And I think he embraced that. He was also sort of a reserved character, as we mentioned a minute Mm -hmm. ago. And so it came naturally to him to kind of listen first, be quiet. Um, and hold his cards close, yeah. uh, which had the advantage of letting people feel kind of seen, heard, valued, respected. It goes such a long way in the work field and in, in your career, and especially in corporate, I think, because the circles can be small. The industries, while big, can be small. I mean, you talked about how you like to hear Dory Clark's interviews on this show. She's a, um, I guess, well, how do you even describe Dory? She wears like 20 different hats, but um, she's on the show often talking about things like leadership. And her last book was about the long game, playing that long game. And it sounds like your father was acutely aware of that. It takes a lot of behavioral strength to play that long game. You have to be able to be patient. You have to be able to take the the losses with, you know, and just get up and go and and recognize that even those losses can be wins uh, down the road. You have to learn how to delay gratification. Did he teach you any of this sort of stuff directly or indirectly as kids growing up? I mean, we'll get to your career in a second too, Jane, because you have such a, a prolific and storied career similar to your dad. You seem to have found your passion more in finance, whereas he started in finance and let, led him to media. But um, your dad is very much in you. Just curious as you were growing up, what were those conversations like? Did he um, make efforts to really like directly tell you these things or it was just really through his modeling that you soaked it up? I would say it was more through the modeling, but he was always very deliberate about pointing out how fortunate both he was and as a result, we as a family were um, to, to keep us grounded, right? As he progressed through his career, it became kind of obvious even without talking about it. You know, he was in the cover of the business section. He was on TV news and um, we lived in a nice home. My sister and I went to private school. Like there were things that were very obvious to us that he wanted to make sure we didn't take for granted or assume that everyone had uh, to keep us, take us down a peg, I guess you'd say. But also that with good luck, you know, comes bad luck too, right? That it's not a perpetual thing. And he used to use the moments where things were challenging for him to point that out. 
um, but also to calm us down when we had moments. Like, I mean, you live a privileged existence. Like it gets a little bit harder. We see this, I think, today, right? Um, where technology and everything is so instantly gratifying and available to people that it's harder to take a longer view and harder to be patient, even with like momentary things, let alone long-term career trajectory. So he was very good about pointing out that luck can change both good and bad. And so to appreciate the good when you have it, but not let yourself get too sidetracked by the bad. Cause you, like mm. you said, sometimes those doors closing or paths shutting off can lead directly to the path that you didn't anticipate. And like, that was definitely true in my career. Like I've tried deliberately a couple of times to work in professional sports. <laughs> and ironically, it's led me back to finance. Like I came to my current job to work on the sports marketing team. And, you know, here I am 11 years later, like not working on that team anymore, <laughs> doing something what do you, what very do you different. Think it is? What it, what's about that? It's just like, <laughs> the universe just doesn't want you in that space. Like what's going on? You know, I, 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 position it a little bit more positively when I think about it, so that I've been open to opportunity that others have seen for me because I wasn't so um, prescriptive about what it was that I wanted to do next. You know, the minute you find yourself in a job that you didn't anticipate having, kind of the next path is not laid out in your mind. So you can be a little bit more open-minded and flexible. Um, and you mentioned Dory Clark, like her long-term planning, like the notion of doing something today that's going to benefit you in the long term, like really resonates with me. And I think goes directly to your original question about treating people well, sort of the foundation of creating luck for yourself and creating opportunity, um, right? People remember that you treated them well, they're going to come back and, and give you a shot at something or just check in and stay connected. What do you think your dad would have thought about some of the CEOs today of companies like, let's just call it out, Elon Musk, right? Where I feel like there is a lot of worshiping around the archetypes, the CEO archetype of like um, CEOs now demanding employees to come back to the office or else. It's just sort of this tone that we've, we're used to it. You know, it's just kind of like, well, here we go again. It's the, it's the greedy CEO. It's the, it's like the profits first, people second. And what would your dad think about that? You know, and, and how did he think about that? Cause it's not a new thing. This is something that was happening all around him throughout his decades in, in the industry. So I don't know, did, did he have any parting thoughts about folks like Elon Musk and the others who today are, seem to be taking up a lot of the space, media, yes, uh, media attention at least. For sure. And, and you started to touch on exactly what my answer was going to be, which is it's not new. It's just right. much more available for us to see. Um, and in fact, he had a really interesting front row seat working for, in particular, two very fortunate men who were children of very wealthy families who went on to buy these massive enterprises that in some ways were the way that they were trying to show the value that they could have in the world. So it was often tied up with ego and other things that had nothing to do with business. And I, you know, I don't know Elon Musk personally at all. I follow him a little bit on Twitter just because it's it's interesting and in vogue. Um, but it seems like his backstory is the same, right? He came from a privileged back background in South Africa. You know, he is incredibly intelligent, but he's probably not been told no very often, given the position that he has both in a professional sense, but also um, from where he came. And I think my dad had a lot of experience with that and had some tongue in cheek responses in telling stories, right? There's one in the book where he talks about playing 
a poker like game with Sumner Redstone on a flight home after they were doing some massive business deal. And Sumner managed to have four aces in a game where that, you know, is just basically never happens. And my dad had happened to have four kings. <laughs> and he said, well, I kept you all in to the end. And my dad said, you know, essentially you couldn't have gotten me out of this game with a gun. You know, the chances of you having four aces are zero, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he said, you were lucky. And Redstone said, I don't believe in luck. And oh, my dad's goodness. comment was, for someone who doesn't believe in luck, you certainly have a lot of it. <laughs> so, dad. I really loved and appreciated the lesson in the book about your father was not necessarily... You didn't look at the world through winners and losers. Like there's no, again, no winners or losers. It was about, let's make a good deal. And that's actually something that I think someone referenced in the book, a, a colleague of his, or maybe I read, I don't know, it's, I, it probably wasn't just one person, but this idea that, you know, people enjoy doing business with him, even if they walked out of the room with, you know, not getting the deal or or getting less than they expected. But his priority was to make sure that everybody felt like they were winning if possible. I think that resonates so much today. And it's an important thing that I think to take into our careers today. I was hoping maybe you had like a real life story around that, that either you took that into your own life or, you know, even for listeners to take that into practice. How how do you think we can do that better in our own lives? That's a great question. I think it's a little bit of the scarcity versus growth mindset, right? At play, whereby like not everything has to be a transaction action where one person's win is another person's loss, right? That if you structured in that case, in in his examples, it was mostly acquisitions of companies where he viewed it more as creating partnerships that would create value after the deal versus simply one person taking something away from the table, right? And just approaching it from the perspective of we're both going to be in it on the other side. So let's be sure that we're both getting out of it something that we feel like is adding value um, rather than you know, extracting, you know, there are some examples um, I could pull on from my current work where like you have something that is a little bit more transactional. Folks don't feel like they have a stake in the outcome and it doesn't go very well, right? Mm -hmm. You represent things that are maybe not factual or are embellished. And then you find out afterward that, you know, everything you assumed was based on something that maybe um, wasn't quite right or wasn't quite as you expected it. It can create a lot of ill will and it creates problems with future partnership and all sorts of other things, right? Um, But in the case in the book, the one that, also goes to one of the other questions that you had sent me in advance about something I learned that I about him that I didn't know before pursuing the book was about one of these deals where he um, there was a time where Coca-Cola was in the entertainment industry and he was in charge of its entertainment division and they were diversifying out of soft drinks because they realized that the soft drink business could only grow as fast as the birth rate which wasn't fast enough for their investors because everyone was drinking Coca-Cola. Go figure. <laughs> oh They've since God. diversified into what water. What a problem to time. have. What a problem <laughs> to have. I know, especially when we, what we know now about soft drinks. But yeah. um, when he was at Coca-Cola, his mandate was to essentially acquire existing entertainment assets to create an entertainment division for Coca-Cola. And one of the enterprises he invested in was called Castle Rock, uh, which had been founded by a few folks who he had worked with in a prior role. And they 
uh, were proposing to make original television and feature films. And Rob Reiner uh, was the director who was the feature film guy there. And dad was really excited about it and, and offered them a very fair deal, kind of call it a market rate deal. And they had a handshake as described, but they went and were finishing some conversations, which they were open about and got what seemed like a sweeter deal. My dad says in the book, you know, I I can't imagine how they're meeting those terms for you. Like they're going to have to match those terms to all their other partners. And economically speaking, that's not going to be feasible for them. So just make sure you're not getting bait and switched. Um, and he says in there, I thought about for a minute getting upset. I thought about saying, you know, I gave you the deal terms first. You just let it be. And sure enough, 10 days later, they came back and said, you were right. The guy we were negotiating with didn't have the authority to give us the deal he did. And he was overruled. And since you offered it to us first, we'd, we'd like to, to come back and partner. And not only did he honor the deal, he sweetened it a little bit. And they went on to create Seinfeld. Um, along with many, many other films that I was aware of, like When Harry Met Sally and Shawshank Redemption, A Few Good Men. I mean, movies we've all seen. And for those in our age range, like defined our upbringing in the movies, right? But I had no idea that they had bought Seinfeld and sold it to NBC. That is a class act move. Right. Can you Um, imagine? It embodies all of it, like treating people well, like partnering, right? So the principles that he Mm -hmm. outlines in the book are kind of timeless and and anyone can pull a thread to try and kind of use them in their everyday, whether you're in a corporate setting or, or just in your everyday life. Well, I think what it also uh, teaches me as I listen to you tell the story is that your father really cared about the other person on the other side of the deal. Whether they were going to do the deal or not, he wanted that person to get a good deal, whether it was with him or somebody else. Like he obviously wanted to be the one to be in partnership with them, but he genuinely only probably worked with people that he liked because that's not something you would tell someone that you like. <laughs> you know, in business, we do business for business and not necessarily because we like the people, but we like we like the business prospect. You know, it's like, maybe I don't like the person who's who founded the company, but I like the company. So I'm going to acquire the company. But it's really important to think about the people that you are working with. And that I think signals to me that he probably really just had a, uh, you know, a soft spot for that person because he was looking out for them. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, the two gentlemen that, that I interviewed specifically to round out the story, because dad left us with like 80% of it. And then I went and finished, finished the fact finding and, and got some good um, corroboration and embellishment. So Alan Horn, who went on to run uh, Walt Disney and had done many other incredible things uh, in between, said that dad had them over a barrel. Like after saying no to him and going to Universal was the one in the book who gave them what seemed to be a better offer. You know, anyone else could have said, no, I'm actually going to tighten the terms. And he said, you know what? No, we needed to be jointly successful. Like my enterprise at Coca-Cola was dependent upon them being successful. And, you know, how are they going to feel coming in thinking that they got pushed into a corner and I was the guy that did it, right? And Rob Reiner's quote to my mom, Mom, actually, when dad passed away was um, he and Castle Rock, his investment in Castle Rock allowed Rob to do the best work of his career, which coming from someone who made some of the most iconic movies you've ever seen is the highest praise, you know, kind of brought a tear to my eye to read it. Would love to hear a story, Jane, from your own career, as you have mentioned a little bit about, you know, going from sports to finance if there was ever a place, a time when you were making a really hard decision about 
your career and or maybe your father helped you make that decision. Um, I just want to kind of see how Frank, his words, his actions actually helped somebody else and who better but his daughter. Absolutely. And I'll use the one that I outlined in the book because I think it's very relevant to your listeners as it relates to that's so money. (laughs) (laughs) Because pursuing a dream can often come at the expense of kind of financial footing, right? You take an internship that's unpaid or you go get in an industry that's well sought after. So the jobs are difficult to get. They're not so lucrative. So working in professional baseball certainly fell into that category, but had been a lifelong dream of mine. I had the great good fortune of working for four years, almost five years in professional baseball um, in marketing, which is my first exposure to marketing. I was mostly interested in getting my foot in the door, but it, it, is, it can be a very, very demanding job in you know, working six months. There are games six days a week, every other week throughout the baseball season. It is the most demanding schedule of the professional sports and you work during the business day too. So it's not just during the games that you're working and can be quite tiring. It's, you know, not for the faint of heart. And I'm grateful I was in my twenties when I did it and I had the energy to to work those long days. Um, But there was a lot of executive turnover um, where I was working at the time was new ownership and ownership was looking to sell. And so executives would, would come and go quite quickly And I was constantly feeling like I needed to reprove myself. Now, there came opportunity with it too. I got to take on more, but I was getting further into my 20s, further into my career, feeling more of a cost to the notion of both spending so much time there, right? I wasn't advancing my goals to start a family. I wasn't saving tons of money. Um, And he gave me really good advice that's actually outlined in the book. I shared directly the email that he wrote me where he essentially said, you know, you don't have to live your whole life just to make money, but paychecks do matter in the sense that you feel valued and rewarded for the contribution that you're making and or fairness relative to your peer set, right? And I hadn't thought about it. I I had such a, a life of privilege that I hadn't been forced to face that decision for kind of functional reasons. I felt like I had the opportunity to go pursue a dream or follow my passion, very much the American dream, right? And absolutely, you can make a career in sports. And it's not to say that you can't, but you have to be willing to sacrifice for long periods of time before you get those jobs that like, I I would say that you can um, call pure success, right? And not grind. Um, And I wasn't sure I was willing to do that. And his advice uh, was both eye-opening to me, but also felt like from a familial perspective that I had his permission to go and kind of retrench and start over or move sideways. And, you know, I'm determined and sort of committed. I don't like to quit. Um, So having both the practical advice about it's okay to go just do something more mainstream in order to earn a conventional living. You don't have to see this through to the very last uh, mile. And and to hear that from a parent can sometimes be really, um, for me, like I kind of had a similar moment where my mom was like, you don't have to take 24 credits in college for years to graduate early. Like I was over, I was killing myself or like, you don't have to, if you hate the job, quit. As my father told me once when I was, I was in my 20s, I was like, quit. First of all, y'all have been the ones who told me that I couldn't quit my entire life. I've, I'm here because of you. <laughs> right. So who best to hear it from than your parents? Because you're ultimately seeking, you have been ultimately seeking like their approval all these years. 
Right. Um, and that's the voice in your head that's been carrying you. But also it's like, uh, wait a minute, when did the script get flipped? I felt a little confused when that happened. Um, did you feel at all like that too? Like, wait a minute, dad, like, couldn't you have given me this pep talk like before I started this job and had to learn it the hard way? A little bit, not to a huge degree in the sense that he kept his opinions to himself a little more than I would have liked because he wanted us to feel like we were making our own decisions rather than just like living out his expectations, Yes. which in hindsight, as a parent, I appreciate as his child, it made me kind of feel like I had to cover off on every last possible piece of perfection because without it, like maybe I wouldn't be meeting. So I was interpreting his expectations probably to an unhealthy degree. Um, but it's interesting. I, I really feel like I completed that journey, if you will, when he passed away, right? Because there's there's no more trying to seek the approval of someone who's not here anymore, right? It's just completely impractical. Um, but you realize up until like already in my 40s when he passed away, on some level, I still viewed success as having him say that he was proud, right? Yeah. Um, which is wonderful, but it's also not entirely productive, right? You need to feel good about what you're doing for the sake of your own judgments of this matters. This is valuable to me. I've done well enough um, for my own expectations. Uh, So I found that to be, while incredibly sad to realize it through a grief process, like very, very relieving. Like I've found my own sort of how I conclude the book, right? Like what makes a good life? And only you can define that for yourself, whether it's in your career, how much money you make, whether you have children or not, who you partner with and all of those things. Like ultimately we have to uh, be comfortable in our own choices first. I can't wait to finish this book. It's so important. I want to gift it to people who are looking to to rise up through the ranks in like, you know, a, a media career or any career, really, this is so relevant. Before we go though, I, I want to end on maybe a fun anecdote because you did mention that you, in although the job didn't endure, uh, when you did work for the Dodgers in, in marketing, you were tasked at a young age with managing the the anthem singers and those who would throw the uh, the first pitch who give me some uh give me some some tea like who is a who is a celebrity that you loved working with didn't like working with someone who i think like a surprising experience did you ever meet like your celebrity hero and were disappointed you don't have to name names um <laughs> for legal reasons but we'd love any behind the scenes of that because that's always fun well, the good news is like much of it was public because it was all televised sure. and, and on the air. So it's probably not violating any confidences. Um, I, there were many, many moments. Um, the one that's most notable that I love to use as my fun fact is that when Taylor Swift was 16 or 17 and she had one album out, it was, she was a budding country star at the time. Um, I worked with the local radio station to bring her in to perform a concert before opening day in 2007, and then ultimately sing the national anthem. And she was kind of shy, actually. You know, she was, she'd performed quite a bit. She had an album, um, a a popular album. Um, But it was a big place and Dodger fans can be somewhat ruthless. Um, So it was very memorable to have met her to, in hindsight, have pulled that off, right? I remember there was a woman from our broadcast partner who after the fact told me that I told her to stop and listen because this woman was going to be famous one day. Of course, I didn't remember that. It was like busy as all get out. Um, But the funny story from that day is I also scheduled the military flyovers 
And the microphone for our PA announcer had gone out during the pregame while he was reading the Rockies starting lineup. And you kind of have one of these crisis moments, <laughs> if there's such a thing in a baseball game. So for about a minute and a half, we fell behind schedule. So it meant that the flyover flew over before Taylor started sw- singing which, you know, in my job was pure failure. I don't think the fans cared at all. I mean, you noticed that the timing was sort of off, but the plane They're was still They're on to really their cool. second or third beers at this point. Exactly. <laughs> so that was a very memorable one. I think in general, the thing that was so memorable about the job is that Dodger fans are brought so much joy from their relationship with the team, whether it's a young child or a grown man who like grew up rooting for the Brooklyn Dodgers, right? Um, so they're out there living their life stream, getting an autograph from a player or meeting someone on the field. So I, my memories also revolve around the baseball stuff, like meeting Tommy Lasorda, working with him day in and day out, meeting Sandy Koufax, working for the organization that integrated baseball by putting Jackie Robinson on the field. There are just a lot of iconic kind of American Americana that came with working there. Um, and so it was a great privilege, not just to work in sports, but to work for that particular organization as well. Um, and I learned so much, right. That if you're willing to take something on and take accountability for it and lead it, like people will give you rope to, to succeed if you ask for it and kind of prove that you're going to be a good steward, if you will, um, of the effort. Um, but in terms of other celebrities, Jonathan, Jonathan Silverman is a big time Dodger fan. He was there all the time. He would play in our celebrity softball game from weekend at Bernie's, (laughs) um, desperate housewives was the show of all shows at the time that I worked there. So James Denton would come out quite a bit. James Vanderbeek from Dawson's Creek came out quite a lot. Um, sort of blast from the past to think through all this stuff but yeah it's good to get your celebrity awkwardness out of the way you know early (laughs) on in life because then when you see them again you're like oh hey 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 Vanderbeek what's up just got to get over that initial uh awestruckness um how fun I mean as I say your 20s are not meant to be set on trying to get the the perfect job or the dream job but like a really good job that's going to teach you important lessons and make make you meet really interesting people. And even if you're just there for six months, it's better than like still just cruising the the job searches online from your mom's basement. Like just do something and, and yes. fail at something, learn something. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for writing this book. What a triumph. What a legacy you've allowed to live on. And thank you for being on the show, Jane. I I really like meeting you. This is fun. Likewise. Thank you for having me and for letting me chat about about him. It's my absolute favorite thing to talk about. So I could talk about all the time. And I'm happy to help you gift the book uh, if you want to do that. Yeah, we'll offer a book um, to a lucky listener. Let's let's figure that out. Okay. Thank you so much. Send me an address. I'll sign it and send it off. Okay. Okay, great. Thanks to Jane for joining us. To learn more about Let's Be Frank, check out letsbefrankbook.com. If you'd like to receive a free copy, head over to my stories on Instagram today to learn how. Thanks for tuning in and I hope your day is so money. 